0: Well, good morning, church. Why don't we stand? We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord is more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we have at the heart of this letter, the gospel message. And we have Paul's personal testimony here. We are going to discover as we learn together why it's here in this place and what Paul was so concerned about. We ask for your guidance um, in wisdom and in strength so that we get to understand you more, understand what Paul was getting at with Timothy back in those days, what the concerns are. were for the church, so we can apply them to our own lives as well. Uh, we, are, we have a lot to learn from Ephesus, and uh, we don't want to miss anything you have for us today. So we are looking forward to our time, and I just pray in your spirit strength that we would have a great time of encouragement and conviction if necessary, but also um, a time of fellowship. With one another. So we just look forward to our time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome back as we continue in First Timothy. Let's just do a quick reminder of where we left off last week. You'll remember that a good portion of our time Uh, was spent looking at the purpose behind the giving of the law and how it worked in conjunction with the gospel. And there were really two big takeaways from the message. First was that even though the law was good, it was not good news. It could never save anyone or make anyone right with the Lord. And the purpose behind the law was really twofold, to produce guilt in a person so that they would turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. And so, secondly, because the law's intention wasn't in, to lead someone to Christ and not to save someone, it meant that the law was not for the righteous person, but for the unrighteous person. There was no point in followers of Christ who had been justified by faith, trying to be made right by the law. This was of no value. If that were the case, Paul's letter to the Galatians in chapter 2 would have been false, where he said, um, for no works of the law, for flesh can't be justified by the law, because if, if, if they did, Christ died needlessly. Now remember why this discussion was happening in the first place in Ephesus. It was due to the presence of the false teachers there. And they were trying to use the law as a way of means of bringing people into right relationship with God. And of course this was of great concern to Paul. Because his teaching completely opposed the very, that. And that it was in opposition to the very nature of the gospel message. And it was in opposition to the purpose and commissioning of the, as an authority as an apostle. So this is why in verse 7, um, Paul made it very clear that these, these people, these false teachers, although wanting to be teachers of the law, they had no understanding of what they were saying um, or matters about which they were making confident assertions. So it's important to remember the context then so we understand how this passage fits in today and why at this juncture point Paul decides to give his personal testimony because what it is here he's giving a defense he's giving a defense of what the gospel really is and how God actually saved someone it's his word against the false teachers he was saved by grace and he's taught the Ephesians early on years before that you're saved by grace these false teachers are coming in and saying Paul's not trustworthy you can't believe his gospel it's actually through our understanding of the law and the myths and genealogies surrounding it as his word against theirs so the personal testimony here is to remind Timothy and the Ephesians of actually how salvation is accomplished and the law had nothing to do with it so this personal testimony here is put in the letter specifically at this moment for a very specific reason so let's dive in let's read verse 12 and 13 I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Although Paul does not mention it here, the event that he is referring to here when he was uh, strengthened, considered (coughs) faithful and put into service was, of course, the moment at the road to Damascus. This is where this occurred. This is where he personally encountered Jesus while on the way to Damascus to persecute Christian people. Now you'll remember this historical account from Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 26. This is where Paul, after the explosion of Christianity had taken place within Jerusalem and surrounding parts of Israel, had gone to the high priest, asking him for permission to go to Damascus, which is modern day Syria, in order to enter the synagogues there to find followers of Christ so he could arrest them Bring him back to Jerusalem, have him stand trial, and be thrown in prison or be executed. Now, it was on his way to Damascus, after receiving the go-ahead from the high priest, that this event occurs in Acts 26. This is his testimony. Uh, This is Paul's testimony to King Agrippa. He said, On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And the Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Although it's not recorded here, after this experience, Paul was completely overwhelmed with brokenness. In Acts chapter 9 and in verses 9, he said, "It says that for three days after this vision and this talk, this encounter with Jesus Christ, he ne- he neither ate nor drank." And here's the thing: Jesus never told him to do that. That wasn't what as he was asked of him. This was Paul's decision. That was his response to his encounter of the risen Lord. He was so overcome with guilt and remorse, and couldn't believe that of how wrong he'd got it that the law couldn't justify. Remember his track record. He was so, amongst his own countrymen, he was top dog in terms of obedience to the law. And all it did was make him an an enemy of God and not in favor with God. This is why, again, Paul says in verse 12 he was thanking Jesus Christ because he was considered faithful. Despite his track record, he was considered faithful. You see, Paul here didn't believe he was chosen by God to be an apostle because his past had demonstrated faithfulness to God or that he'd proven in the past to be trustworthy. This, of course, is a contradiction to his own personal testimony here. Rather, that despite such a brutal track record and a life marked with tragic sin, God would even consider him faithful in the first place to have this position as an apostle. And he would trust them with the prized possession, the gospel message. And when you look at Paul's past, you can see why. Look at the triad of sins he mentions in verse 13. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Now when you read this list, uh, you get the basic picture of what this guy is like. And I'm sure you could categorically figure out what this must have looked like. But I want to spend some time expanding on what these are to truly appreciate how deeply steeped Paul's hatred was for Christ and his followers. And I want to turn to Acts 26, verse 9 to 11 to get the list. He says this, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast a vote against them. And I, as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities." I want to look at this list extensively. There's really five actions that define Paul's triad of sins in verse 13. The first one is this, that he actually locked up many of the saints in prisons. Okay, in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, the way he accomplished this was he would go into the homes and ravage them and force them to flee out of their house. All right, actually, I'll just read it. He says, he began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging men and women and throwing them into prison. Now, the word ravage just means to, in, in Greek, to ruin or to destroy. So he was, ra- he was destroying and ruining the church by going into these houses and dragging them out. So this is not a willful leaving. He doesn't come in and say, you know, recant or else. There's no choice in the matter. He walks in, he grabs them basically by the scruff of the neck or by the you know twist of the arm and they're pulled out um, against their will. This is a forceful thing. Probably the best ex- way to ex- describe it, um, and you've all seen World War II movies of some kind where... The Nazis came into these homes, uh, you know, the the Polish Jews or whatever, and just while they were having dinner would come and just like come in and they would come in and just grab the father or, or the mother and rip them apart and pull them and throw them in the back of a truck and the kids were left there crying, wondering what happened to mom and dad. You know, these are the kind of things you have to envision when they're being dragged out of their homes. Not only this, they were being put to death. Many were under Paul's authority for receiving the death penalty. Now this is important because I think most of you recognize Paul as being a murderer of maybe only one person. Acts with Stephen. Everyone associates Stephen and Paul was there watching it occur and would have cast his vote against Stephen. But you know what's important? It actually says they were being put to death. They. A multitude of people under the hands of Paul were getting voted against that they should be executed. It wasn't just Stephen, Paul was responsible for the loss of many, many lives. He was leading like you know mass executions. It's really important to understand that Paul was, you know Doug, didn't just go after Stephen and was there for Stephen. He went after multiple of people. Well, I apologize to those of you who were listening to this message. But the batteries died on my recorder, only 13 minutes in on the sermon, so I'm forced to re-preach it in the quietness of my own home. So let's continue from where we left off. The next category that demonstrated Paul's past hatred was that he punished Christians in synagogues in verse 11 and forced them to blaspheme, also in verse 11. Now I'll put these together because I think they fit together. There's no scripture that speaks of Paul punishing anyone in the synagogue. So it's hard for us to know exactly what this was going on there, but there's a key word that helps us. Remember, he described himself in our passage as being a violent aggressor in verse 13. Well the same root word in Greek is used in Luke 18.32. Jesus is there with his disciples and he begins to foretell to them about what his future was going to hold. He talks about what life was going to be like in his last moments before he was crucified. And he says this, that everything that the prophet spoke about was going to come to fruition. And he said, I will be handed over to the Gentiles, I will be mocked and mistreated, spit upon and flogged. Now this word mistreated is the same Greek root word as the word aggressor and violent aggressor. Now when we go to the Gospels and other scriptures we can see how he was mistreated. He was spat upon, he was beaten with sticks, He was slapped in the face. And even Isaiah said that his beard was going to be plucked out. So this is quite an intensive list. So what was probably occurring then was during these torturous practices where Paul was trying to make these persecutors, or these these believers, I should say, blaspheme. In other words, he was trying to force them to slander or speak evil or curse or deny their connection to Jesus Christ. So Paul was probably entering these synagogues Finding these professing believers and engaging in horrific practices, trying to get them to recant on their faith. Another thing he was doing was he was, in verse 11, was that he says that he was furiously enraged, pursuing these believers to other cities. So what we have here is not a picture of a calm and cool collective man. This guy's a madman, and he's not just content to purge Jerusalem of Christianity. Anywhere he could find Christians in any location, he was out to destroy them and block anything out to do with Jesus Christ. Really, Church, to contextualize this, he's a modern day radical ISIS leader. Paul was a religious terrorist. Now just stop and imagine if this occurred at Genesis House. Here's this radical Islamic man who comes into Okotoks, scouts out Genesis House, goes into our churches, goes into our homes, and he starts pulling us out. He starts ripping our families apart. He starts, during the Sunday service, torturing us, trying to make us recant our faith in Jesus Christ, and promising that it would all end if we would just deny him, is quite a remarkable scene. I mean, imagine being in your home and being ripped apart from your families and uh, sent into jail, not knowing if you'd ever leave the, the cell in one piece. You can see why now Paul defines himself in verse 15 as being the foremost of all sinners. He persecuted the people of God in the name of God. 1 Corinthians 15:9. he said, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You can now see with all this in context why Paul was so amazed that Jesus would offer him grace and mercy, and that he would even consider him faithful in verse 12 to put him into service. But there's an important lesson for us, Church. And that's that no matter what our past is, it can't disqualify us from being used by God. This is really important. I speak to those of you who have a tendency to self-condemn. Like this idea, well, I, I, my past is too horrific. God could never use me. Or the sins I've done are worse than everybody else. I, I can't. I, he can't use me. Well, not according to Paul. Not according to Paul. Regardless of whether you have a formal ministry or an informal one meaning that you you do things behind the scene where where nobody sees and they're just in, like you know maybe not in formal positions of teaching or being up front. The point is is that God can and will use you despite your past. The only thing that hinders us from being used by him is probably our own self-condemnation, but his grace and mercy can take care of all of that. We just have to believe the promises, believe the promises that he has in scripture for us. And see, here's the thing, our initial relationship with God, as we learn from Paul, is not dependent on our faithfulness to God, but on his to us. This is his mercy and grace, and we pick this up in, in 13 again. He says there, Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. I want to first comment on Paul's statement that he was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul wasn't implying that he was not guilty before God or was not accountable for his actions. He had just called himself the worst of sinners in verse 15. Paul was making a distinction between intentional and purposeful sin versus a sin that was done in ignorance. Let me see if I can provide you with an example. The Pharisees in the present day, I believe, acted intentionally and purposely against God in terms of their sinfulness, whereas Paul didn't. He did it in ignorance. You see, the Pharisees, they were privileged in that they heard personally the voice of Jesus Christ. They saw him and heard him teach what he taught. They were witness to his miracles. They even went to the degree to cover up their resurrection. So they, they had no other conclusion that he, they, that he must have resurrected, but they went up to the degree to, to cover it up. So these they, they would, they had, there was no doubt in their minds that he had proven himself through his teaching and his miracles that who he really was and who he claimed to be. Yet they purposefully and willfully rejected him. And they even attributed his ministry to Satan. This was not the case for Paul. He had not rejected him and Jesus in willful defiance. He had not experienced Jesus in this way. He had not heard him personally teach. He had not seen him do miracles. He never got a chance to encounter him personally and experience him. Everything he knew of Jesus was second hand through these believers. And everything they were claiming just seemed absolutely ludicrous and in opposition to the Old Testament that he understood. We see the same kind of thing occurring in terms of Jesus' attitude towards ignorant people when he was laying on the cross. He says to the Roman, in front, he says regarding the Roman soldiers, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23, verse 34. They didn't understand who Jesus was, that he was the God of the universe and had come to save them. Ironically, though, one soldier did come to understand that uh, right after he was put to death. So again, Paul is not saying that he was not guilty, but that he just acted in ignorance as to what he had done. Now what I love about Paul in verse 13 and 14 is that even though he had sinned horrifically against God, he knew it didn't prevent God's grace from being extended to him. And despite his horrific past, in verse 14 he said, "...the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus." So for Paul it didn't matter how big one's sins were and how big the list was, Christ's act on the cross was even bigger. There was nothing the cross of Christ could not handle. And there's a massive lesson in there for us as well, church. Nothing that we've done cannot be forgiven. I mean, just honestly, think this through now. Just compare your life to Paul. Have you ever killed anyone? In the physical sense? Have you ever ripped any families apart by going into their house and ripping the children away from the mom and the dad and ripping the husband and wife apart and throwing them into jail because of their faith? I doubt it. At least of everything I know of you, you've never done anything like that. Yet Paul could be forgiven. This is important because when you look at your own track record, yeah, there might be some horrific things in the past, but there I doubt you've outclassed Paul in the area of sin. Paul's teaching us that no one is beyond grace and no one is beyond mercy there's nothing that cannot be forgiven by God if we turn to him and for Paul this was the gospel message this was the purpose for his coming as we read in verse 15 he said it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners amongst whom I am the foremost of all Paul's point couldn't be more clear the reason Christ came to the world and left heaven and took on flesh was to die for people like him and to Die for people like you and me. Furthermore, there was a purpose though in God saving him and for us as well. Look at verse 16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul was basically saying this, well actually the key words are here, I'm an example. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm a prototype for how God saves sinners, how salvation is accomplished in one's life. I'm living proof of the gospel message. Even though God did have the right to kill him, he could have, he could have just judged him and smote smote him. He didn't. He offered him grace and mercy. And I like what Gordon Fee, one of my commentators, says regarding this, and he speaks as if he were Paul himself. So this is Fi, pretending he's Paul. He says, If God would and could do it to me, given who I was and what I did, then there is hope for all. thats I think he's nailed it right on the head. So it's no wonder then, after experiencing God's grace and mercy, why Paul ends the way he does in verse 17. He says there, Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only one God, be honor and glory forever. Amen really he praises God for his attributes here he calls him eternal so he was not just a ruler of one particular age through one particular time in history but he was a ruler through all ages and for all time he's immortal literally the word means to be incorruptible he could not be touched by death or decay as a non-created being this would make total sense only created beings have that as an issue he's invisible God was spirit, and since he was spirit, he couldn't be seen by eyes or heard by ears. He only revealed himself to man when he chose to. And he would often do do so through things like uh, fire and, and and clouds and stuff like that. Not only this, he was the only God. A pretty big statement in a polytheistic society. He was the only God. He had no competitors. But don't forget in conclusion why the context of Paul's testimony is here, especially at this juncture point in the letter. Remember the false teacher's message? They believe that salvation came through observance of their understanding of the Old Testament law, and by following their genealogical links to myth, or their, their myths regarding genealogies and some of their aesthetic practices, that that's how you got right with God. But Paul's really saying here, "Do you remember my story? I was one who upheld the Old Testament law perfectly, even to the point that I persecuted the church. And look at where that got me. It didn't make me right with God. It made me an enemy of God. And so through this experience on the road to Damascus, God's mercy grace had overwhelmed him, and he realized how salvation had tr- was truly found. It was not by this, these ascetic practices, ascetic practices or tie, genealogical ties or believing in these myths or legends or any kind of Old Testament practices regarding the law. It was by faith in Jesus Christ. So really, his testimony here, if I was to put a summary statement, it acted as a corrective to the Ephesian church who had been spellbound by these false teachers. So what can we learn from this? Number one, regardless of how sinful our past has been, God is willing to forgive us. Regardless of how sinful our past has been, God is willing to forgive us. There's no sin that we've done that the cross of Christ can't undo. That's important. And when I speak this is important for people who do not know Jesus Christ yet. You don't receive this, however, this this offer of forgiveness by osmosis. You can't earn your way into God's favor. There's no such thing as a spiritual report card before him. Otherwise, Jesus died for no purpose. The way to experience this forgiveness, though, is we have to confess our sins. We own own our sin before God, tell Him everything we've done wrong that we know put Him on the cross. Then we repent. We demonstrate in the way we live that there's a willingness to go His way and leave our old life behind. There has to be marked change in our outward behavior and thought life. And then we, like I said, we conduct ourselves in relationship to Him. There's always two deaths at Calvary. There's Jesus Christ for us, but then there's us for him in terms of of the way we live out our lives in faith. I also want to speak to people who are believers now though, because I know a lot of people that are self-condemners. So this lesson is very important. Regardless of how sinful our past has been, God's willing to forgive. A lot of Christians don't live this way. They seem to continue to punish themselves and make themselves unworthy of God's grace. But no matter what you do, there's no way you can punish yourself beyond the punishment of the cross. There's no way you'll never do any penance or any kind of self-beating up or any kind of like mental play any mental game that is any worse than what Christ had to suffer on the cross. That's the only penalty for sin. That's the only way forgiveness can be granted is through blood being spilled. So it's key for us then to to live in the promises of God. To, to appropriate these promises to us that we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven and, and we walk in that freedom. No more self-condemnation. The second le- lesson is regardless of how sinful our past has been, God's willing to use us in service. Again, Paul was a terrible sinner yet he could be used to be one of probably the second most important person in all of history next to Jesus. He His, his incredible incredible track record going forward after receiving God's forgiveness. God could use the most heinous of people. Therefore God can use us, despite our past as well. I want to speak about a guy named Mark Marks. Um, he's from Ireland. He has a street ministry and I, I read his book and he said this, that uh, when he takes people on the street for the first time and they have to get used to hecklers and persecutors who speak out against this ministry on the streets. And what was fascinating about the whole thing was, uh, you could tell that these people were sort of uneasy and wanted Mark to do something about these men and women. And Mark basically turned to them and said, "You know, the good thing about these persecutors and these hecklers is is that when when they come to Christ, <laughs> they make tremendous ambassadors for Him. Isn't that true? Sometimes the most the most heinous and most violent, most uh, and most outspoken people actually become." <laughs> Uh, the most um, usable by God in the in the end, because they're very zealous in terms of their anti-Christian views. But that same zealousness, that same personality, gets now directed towards Christ, and they become some of his most important people in terms of evangelism. Lesson three: the purpose of Jesus coming was to save us from sin. That's verse 15. It said first. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. We get mixed up about why he came sometimes. We have all these different answers about, you know, he came so that we could do this and he could do that and the other. Again, the gospel is far-reaching and has a, uh, impacts many areas of life. But the main purpose for Jesus to come was to die on the cross to save you and I from sin. Again, important in the context where the false teachers believe that parts of observing the law was what saved you from sin.